Two deadly explosions at the Boston Marathon today, Monday, April 15th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. Twin bomb blasts near the finish line of the Boston Marathon today. Two are confirmed dead, including an eight-year-old child. More than 100 are injured. President Obama vows to find those responsible, but he urges people not to jump to conclusions before all the facts are in. We get reflections on the events from one woman who ran in today's Boston Marathon. It's all about doing the best, being the best, achieving personal goals, either for yourself or for others less fortunate. And for an event like this to happen is just really be beyond sort of understanding. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Double explosions at the Boston Marathon today and a horrific scene. We saw like a fireball and uh, smoke just coming out of the air. And later on, the the second explosion was heard as well. People were very uh, panicked. A lot of people were crying. They were looking for uh, the runners that they were waiting to come in uh, through the finish line, as well as, you know, family. Uh, That's when I thought it became really serious because a lot of people started running away from the scene and they were crying and some people had cuts on their faces. That was an onlooker who was a few hundred feet away from the explosion. Boston's police commissioner says the blasts were the result of powerful devices. Two people are confirmed dead, and dozens more are reported to be injured. President Obama urged people not to jump to conclusions about who was responsible, but he said any responsible individuals will feel the full weight of justice. Boston Globe columnist Juliet Kayyem served in the first Obama administration in the Department of Homeland Security. So what we know now is that this was a specific targeted series, uh, or at least two, if not three, uh, explosions at the finish line, which is the high-profile area of the Boston Marathon. Um, There are two dead that are being confirmed by Police Commissioner Ed Davis, and that what has essentially happened is that what was supposed to be the victory scene and the finish scene is now a crime scene. Is there any information on what might have caused the explosion? Davis, the Boston police commissioner, is saying, which is he's not confirming what kind of detonation it was, um, though it was two simultaneous ones. And so um, it does look just from the pictures that it was a pretty basic one. You know, in some ways it was didn't seem highly sophisticated, something that any lone person could do. And that's why I think we should have caution about words like foreign terrorist or whatever, that this could have been any number of things. And I think it's smart of public safety officials and the political leadership to uh, not throw out a lot of words right now. They are just want people to stay home tonight until we know what's going on in Boston. Juliet, have you heard anything on security measures that were taken before the marathon? Yeah, well, so I used to, to be involved with security for the marathon because I was the governor's homeland security advisor. So this is a security event. Um, every sporting event 
today um, is a security event, you know, whether it's a, it's, a, it's a place like the Super Bowl or even a marathon. But the idea that a marathon would be targeted is never at the forefront because it's just it doesn't have the sort of um, intensity of locale that, say, a Super Bowl or any stadium would have. But every asset of local, state, and federal uh, preparation has been planning for security for the marathon for months in advance. They tend to focus on crowd control um, as well as the public health aspects of a marathon. People get uh, get you know people get overheated, they collapse. Um, this tends to be not at the forefront. Juliet, it seems fair to say that uh, strategists and uh, people who are investigating this have to be thinking all sorts of different things right now. What is the first thing they're thinking? Uh, well, the first thing uh, that they will be thinking is they have a great piece of evidence in the explosives themselves. So there will be uh, traces uh, of material will then lead back to purchases, which will then lead to potential buyers, which then could get us to a suspect. Also, you know, because this was the finish line, we're seeing this right now on TV, there's lots of pictures and there's lots of cameras and there's people who probably took pictures without knowing it um, of something that was happening. So everyone should look at their at their iPhone. And um, so those will be the first two things uh, that will start the investigation right now. Whether it leads to foreign terrorism or homegrown terrorism, we, we can't determine now. So we just have to sort of remain calm in that regard. Now, the Boston Marathon is not just a Boston event or a U.S. Yeah. event. It's a, it's a world event, really. I mean, there are runners right. from all around the globe. What do you think the president is hearing right now? So he'll probably hear from two strains of inquiry. So one is going to be on the homeland security side. Was there, uh, were there any internet chatter? Were there homegrown groups? And then on the more counterterrorism, foreign intelligence side, there's going to be uh, a, a focus on, well, was there any stream suggesting this marathon was going to be targeted? I have to say, you know, while we do worry about sporting and security a lot of the time, especially like a big event like a Super Bowl, um, America Marathon has never really been um, a, a worrisome area um, uh, like, say, a concert or a Super Bowl, just because you don't get that density of people. Um, you do get a dense area in the finish line, and that's, uh, that's clearly what happened today. That was Boston Globe columnist Juliet Kayyem, who served in the first Obama administration. We turn now to my WGBH colleague, Ibi Caputo, who's at Brigham and Women's Hospital, not far from the marathon route. Uh, Ibby, this program, The World, we're based in Boston. We usually don't track local Boston news, but today, clearly, this is one Boston story we are following. Uh, what's the scene now at Brigham and Women's Hospital? So the hospital is uh, it's on lockdown. There's three officers who have assault rifles, and they're standing in front of uh, the doors, the several doors into Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, no one is allowed in unless you have a direct relative who is in the hospital. Of course, it's a big hospital, but they have uh, they have received patients uh, from the explosion. And what kind of injuries? What kind of what kind of injuries have you seen today, Ibby? So I, I haven't seen them personally, but I've heard stories uh, that a lot of the injured, uh, the ones who went to Mass General at first, they are amputees. It's called trauma, uh, traumatic amputees, where they actually lost limbs in the explosions, mostly legs. Um, here at Brigham, the, the ages run from teens till the 40s, and there was a young child who was uh, transported from Brigham and Women to Children's Hospital, which is right around the block. Uh, it's 
it's pretty bad. Uh, there's 26 people here, 22 at Mass General, and uh, of the 22 at Mass General, six are critical. They went straight to the OR, and five of them were unidentified. They did not know who they were. They were trying to find out, but as you know, runners, they don't always carry a lot on them. Uh, and then there's about uh, 20, 26 people here. Two of them are critical as well. Um, have you spoken with any eyewitnesses or families of victims? Yeah, there's there's actually runners who have come to the hospital or spectators who have come to the various hospitals wanting to either give blood or bring food, uh, either to help the people who are injured or to actually support the caretakers, uh, the hospital staff, and the volunteers who are, are helping out. Um, but at least at Brigham and Women, where I am now with the guards with the assault rifles, no one is being allowed in who doesn't have a direct relative uh, in the hospital. I'm just wondering, I mean, the hospital's in Boston, and there are many of them. Uh, are they having to pool resources to cope with the many injured victims at this point? Well, when I was at Mass General, the uh, the head of emergency services said that they, they have people on standby, and they have asked their their trauma doctors to stay uh, until the uh, the hospital is what they call deactivated. Right now, everyone's on standby. They have, you know, everyone who could be here is mobilized and ready to take more people if possible, if, if there's a need. All right. WGBH reporter Ibby Caputo in Boston, thanks for your time. Thank you. We also checked in with the world's Andrea Crossan. I'm on the corner of Boylston and Arlington in central Boston here. It's next to Boston Common. And I'm about five blocks away from where the actual explosions happened here earlier today. And what have you been seeing so far in the uh, time that you've been there? There have been thousands of people who've been trying to make their way away from the marathon site. Some of them were uh, people who ran the race. Others were spectators, friends, family who were watching on. Uh, Some of the people that I spoke to were telling me that they were unable to complete the race. They got pulled off the course after the explosion happened. And for many of them, it's been this long evening of trying to find friends and family, uh, trying to stay warm. It's a fairly chilly night out here, so people are trying to get blankets. Some of the hotels have been giving out blankets to people. Uh, They've also been giving them food and other things that they might need when they've almost finished the 26 miles and got pulled off the course. You know, it's a holiday uh, here in Massachusetts today. The the marathon is a big draw, uh, not just for runners, for families uh, to just watch what's going on. It must be pretty eerie for families right now in downtown Boston. I think it's very distressing for people who've had to witness so much of what's been happening here this afternoon. You come out for a nice afternoon to to watch what is such an amazing major sporting event in this country, and to have something like this happen is completely shocking. I, I haven't ever seen an incident like this since I've been in Boston. That's about 15 years. Describe downtown Boston at the moment. What does it look like? Well, a few minutes ago, they, the area that was cordoned off was filled with school buses. And usually the school buses would be taking the runners away from the site. But they had to check all of the buses with the bomb squad. So there was bomb squad trucks on either side of the buses going up and down to check the buses. Once they were cleared, they were able to get them out of the cordon off area and start getting some of the runners away. Uh, the area right now is still filled with police. There's probably about 30 police officers just in my eye line right now. And other than that, it's, it's a sea of garbage and all these things that people have just dropped wherever they were to flee the scene. Andrea, is there any information that you've heard uh, on, on what might have caused the explosion? 
The police down here are not saying anything about the cause of the explosion. But to get a sense of what the seriousness of it, there every single police officer in Boston is on duty tonight. That's 2,000 officers. The officers who are off duty were pulled in to help out today. I've also just I've been standing next to a gentleman who was with the Metro SWAT police. So they've brought in SWAT teams in the area as well. Also, overhead, every couple of minutes, you hear helicopters going by. So uh, clearly, there's still a huge operation down here to get to the bottom of what's happened. Right. And we've heard about many different uh, units, uh, first responders coming to the scene, not just city, but also state and federal. Are you seeing evidence of that? Absolutely. Yeah. The SWAT team, the member that I was speaking to, said that he's part of a regional team. So they've been brought in to help out. And it's a fairly daunting sight to see people in uh, in military gear with handguns and what he said so he told me was an M4 standing in front of hotels on what is a very posh shopping street, Newbury Street, which is generally on a normal day a very beautiful place to be walking around. Yeah, not today, though. The world's Andrea Crossan in downtown Boston. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. terrible day for Boston, where this program broadcasts from for visitors to the city and for the Boston Marathon, an event that draws people from around the globe. To recap, two bombs exploded near the finish line of the Boston Marathon earlier today. Two people were killed, and there are reports of dozens of injured. The AP and others have reported a scene of broken glass, smoke, and severed limbs at the finish line of the world's oldest and most prestigious marathon. A senior U.S. intelligence official said two other explosive devices were found near the marathon finish line. No immediate word on the motive or who may have launched the attack, and authorities in Washington said there was no immediate claim of responsibility. The Boston Marathon said that bombs caused the two explosions and that organizers were working with authorities to determine what happened. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Frustration at the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay boiled over into violence this weekend. The showdown had been coming for weeks, you could say years even. The flashpoint was a standoff over hunger strikes. More than 40 detainees have been refusing food for weeks, and some are being now force-fed. There's been growing frustration in the prison over the inmates' indefinite confinement. Carol Rosenberg covers Guantanamo for the Miami Herald. We spoke with her on a cell phone just before she boarded a flight to Guantanamo Bay. She explained what was going on when fighting broke out on Saturday between guards and prisoners. There had been a protest going on, and about 60 to 80 prisoners had been refusing to go into their individual cells and had been doing a sit-in in a communal cell block, which by its nature allowed prisoners to eat together, pray together, spend time together, kick around a soccer ball together. But they were supposed to go into their cells and let the doors close by an electronic locking device on the orders of the um, guards. And they hadn't done it for months. 
So before dawn on Saturday, the uh, soldiers went in and forced into these communal cell blocks and one by one forced each one of these communal, ostensibly cooperative captives into their cells and locked them inside. This operation comes in the context of a hunger strike that some of the prisoners had. And the prison says they can keep hunger striking, but they've got to obey the rest of the rules. So everybody's in lockdown while they figure out how they're going to manage this hunger strike. And do you know this part of the prison where the fighting broke out? We know it was Camp 6. We know it was in the cell blocks. Because inside the cell blocks, the captains kept to one side of the door, and the guards were on the outside looking in. And so when the guards came in to push them one by one into individual cells, the military told us they fought back and refused to go into their cells. In the course of the operation, the military says they fired off rubber pellets, what they call less than lethal gunfire. They say nobody was seriously hurt, nobody was hospitalized, but there was a, what sounds like a brawl, quite frankly. So with all the detainees on lockdown in single occupancy cells, I mean, uh, does that mean that there will be no more hunger strikers unless they are going to be force-fed by the U.S. government? No, hunger striking continues. They're continuing to say that 43 of them have refused at least nine meals and will not eat. The military says they're not trying to break the hunger strike, but that they wanted to be able to have eyes on each one of them in order to decide when and how and to easily carry them off for these forced feedings. What are the demands of the detainees at this point? Well, the lawyers have been pretty consistent in saying that the issue was a search of the Koran that they considered to be pretty aggressive. The underlying issue is the ones who have been cleared years ago by a task force of the Amara administration say they should be able to go home, that the U.S. intelligence, foreign affairs offices, and all of the different institutions of government went through the files and concluded that nearly 90 of the 166 men could be transferred but for restrictions by Congress and, frankly, restrictions by the White House on return to Yemen, where many of these men are from. So in short term, they want to be able to turn in their Korans because they think the soldiers don't respect it. But in the overarching long term, they just want to go home. Carol, one of the detainees described in detail the process of being force-fed uh, in the New York Times this weekend. And once you read it, you can kind of see why the U.S. Uh, group Physicians for Human Rights uh, sees force-feeding as approaching torture at some points. How does the U.S. government justify the force-feeding? The U.S. government says that, that they cannot allow someone to suicide at Guantanamo Bay, that they consider it, A, inhumane, but B, it would look bad. They have international obligations to care for these men. This is the position of the military, and that they believe their obligation is to keep them alive and healthy, even at the risk of using these very aggressive systems of feeding them through tubes, which, as you point out, some international medical groups say is at odds with medical ethics that people should be allowed to starve and that some people describe as, as, as torture. This is a choreography at Guantanamo that's been going on for years. People refuse to eat. The military concludes that somebody has become too malnourished or is too weak. And they take them, they strap them into a feeding chair, which involves shackling them in place and sometimes using a head restraint and then tethering this, this medical tube up their nose, down the back of their throat, into their stomach, and pumping in a can of nutritional supplement. The military is very defensive of this. They don't consider it torture, and they think that this is a humane thing to do and that it's medically approved. But we heard from the International Committee of the Red Cross last week that they consider that force feeding, and they don't approve of it. Carol Rosenberg with the Miami Herald. Thanks so much, Carol. Thank you, Marco. 
Prison hunger strikes have long been used as a tool of protest. Two of the most infamous ones took place in Northern Ireland in 1980 and 81. Ten prisoners there starved themselves to death. Brendan O'Leary is Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He says that the inmates were striking to be classified as political prisoners instead of criminals. The use of hunger strikes by Irish Republicans has been a constant since Irish Republicans organized themselves against British rule in the 19th century in order to gain formal recognition as a political prisoner. And that's in fact, what happened in 1980 and 1981, the prisoners in the Mays prison, as it was called in Northern Ireland, were striking in support of five demands, including the right to work, the right not to wear prison uniforms, the right to have people come and attend them once a week to receive parcels and so on. The hunger strikes began against a, a background of of previous protests that had not been successful for the prisoners. They had uh, refused to wear uniforms. They had carried out what was called a dirty protest, namely uh, refusing to wear prison uniforms and smearing excrement on their cell walls, urinating, refusing to use the institutions of, of the jail. That protest had not been particularly successful, so the hunger strike was adopted as a last resort. Now, the key figure and the first to die in that hunger strike was Bobby Sands. Uh, Do you think the British government anticipated the kind of martyrdom effect that that resulted? They thought about it. They obviously did not anticipate that after Sands died that 100,000 people would attend his funeral. So they they did seriously miscalculate. Was there any concern in in the British government about the inhumanity uh, of letting strikers starve themselves or, you know, some of the Hippocratic concerns that the U.S. government is expressing right now? At the time, I thought that the U.K. government was caught in a logical contradiction because it had special legal arrangements. It was appropriate that the prisoners be recognized as, as having a special status. Likewise, With regard to the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, it seems to me logically that they should be treated as prisoners of war. But if you refuse to give them prisoner of war status, then you have to decide what status they have. But but even in terms of just pure mercenary PR, wouldn't it be worse for the U.S. government if, if any of these detainees were to die because they starved themselves to death? The trouble with force feeding is that you're force feeding somebody whose body is in an advanced state of uh, deterioration. And there's a, a high possibility that they could um, die from, from your intervention. At the moment, of course, the U.S. administration is probably calculating that forced intervention is better because that way they don't create a martyr. But it seems to me highly probable that if they continue with this method and if there is a continuing sequence of prisoners, they're likely to have such a martyr in any case. Brendan O'Leary, Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman in Boston. Ahead, deadly explosions at the Boston Marathon finish line. President Obama speaks out. We still do not know who did this or why. And people shouldn't jump to conclusions before we have all the facts. But make no mistake, we will get to the bottom of this. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. As we've been reporting, two bomb explosions have disrupted Boston's most prestigious sporting event. There have been two deaths and dozens critically injured people at the Boston Marathon, young and old, runners and bystanders caught up in this terrible incident. WGBH senior reporter Philip Martin is on the line now. Philip, tell us first of all where you are. Marco, I'm near the blast site. Uh, I'm at the Copley Weston Hotel, which is across the street. The uh, the police have basically set up a uh, a press center here. Uh, there are dozens of uh, press uh, here, reporters from all over the world, who were here to cover a sports event, and now they're covering a a, a criminal scene, a, a criminal incident, uh, which uh, the the authorities here seem reluctant to characterize, at least now at least at this point, is a terrorist incident. Right. Now, thousands of Boston police have been deployed, including part-timers, uh, as we've been hearing, at the crime scene where the explosions took place and, and at the hospitals where victims are being treated. Five hospitals are treating the injured. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, uh, some of the injuries are horrific. I was sitting next to a, a photographer who was going over his photographs, and one of the photographs is of a man in a wheelchair uh, now, there are wheelchair runners, of course, but this man's legs had been blown off by the explosion. And this uh, this photographer, a seasoned photographer, was in anguish over the uh, photograph that he had shot uh, for his local newspaper, a uh, one of the two uh, major newspapers here in Boston. And this is a sports photographer, I gather, who covers marathons all around the world. Well, that's right. He covers marathons. And uh, this, of course, is uh, something new. Uh, and it was, uh, And he was... Talking aloud, uh, just uh, describing this as a horrific uh, scene, I leaned over and saw the photograph. Indeed, it was horrific. And, I mean, emotionally right now, Philip, how has this event affected people who are in town for this sports event? I came across several people, Marco, who were walking away from the blast, and uh, they were uh, they were in shock, uh, particularly uh, young people, uh, children, were in tears. As you know, one of the victims who passed, who died, uh, is an eight, eight, uh, was an eight-year-old boy. Uh, and uh, the children, uh, but not just children and teenagers in tears, the runners themselves were either shell-shocked uh, or they were, uh, some of them were in tears as well. Uh, this uh, has had a, a extraordinary impact on this city and certainly on on the Boston Marathon as a sports event. Well, the Boston Marathon itself is is over. Have all the runners come in during the event, or were they taken off the course after the explosions? Well, I spoke to a, Nicole, um, a woman named Nicole Burns from Washington, D.C. Uh, as She had just crossed uh, the, the, um, the finish line when the explosion occurred, and she was, uh, was walking away at this point, uh, uh, and, and so it's a lot of runners, uh, of course, the premier runners come in early. They come in around 12 o'clock or so. But a lot of runners come in way after the uh, the initial runners, the premier runners, cross the finish line. So there were runners still coming in when this explosion uh, uh, occurred. So, Philip, what happens next? Uh, it's time for the investigation to, to begin the, at the crime scene. The White House has not called it a terrorist attack, uh, but it's at least one of the scenarios that will be investigated, I assume. Well, that's right. Uh, there have been a number of false starts. Uh, there, was a, there, there was a talk of a suspect in custody today, um, and that uh, the, the, 
Boston police commissioner um, basically backtracked on that. Uh, and what, what they're doing now is there's still a major search going on in the area. A 15-square-block area around here is being searched, uh, and the, the subways uh, have been disrupted. Service has been disrupted. There are some lines that have been um, uh, that are not running at this point. The main line here in Boston is the red line from um, from Cambridge into um, into Boston, and several stops have uh, been closed uh, until authorities have had time to search those areas thoroughly. WGBH Boston Public Radio reporter Philip Martin, thanks for the update. Thank you, Marco. Moving off now from this terrible story out of our city, Boston, to China. China's new leaders face great challenges and great expectations. Economic growth is slowing, the population is aging, and the environment is in a state of crisis. In the midst of it all, the Chinese people increasingly want a different kind of relationship with their government, one where their rights and preferences are respected. The Communist Party has a long history of imposing grand plans, many with unintended consequences and human costs. The party has backed away from a lot of them, and it's promising more reform. But for many Chinese, it's not happening fast enough. All this week, we'll be looking at five key reforms that more and more Chinese think are way past due. The world's China correspondent Mary Kay Magstad starts off with the one-child policy. In hip urban China, there's all kinds of choice, all kinds of freedoms that earlier generations under Communist Party rule could only have dreamt of. Where to eat, where to shop, what to watch, where to work, how to live. With one significant exception. The state still tells each Chinese family how many kids they can have and when. And while these days couples can get off with paying a stiff fine for violating the policy... The state has been known to be brutal to those who bend or break the rules. Tang Le Chong was eight months pregnant in 2005 when family planning officials dragged her from her home in the southwestern province of Yunnan and forced her to have an abortion. She says she called the police. They came, but then shrugged and said the family planning officials were just doing their job. After all, she already had a child. She says she might even have agreed with them. 25 years under a coercive system can warp one's perspective, except that she'd actually obtained the required permit to have a second child. In different parts of China, couples are allowed to have a second child if the first child is a girl or if they're farmers or if they're from an ethnic minority. Tang and her husband qualified on all three counts. Tang says the problem was that it took her a couple of years to get pregnant. And every year, local officials are given a quota of how many births are allowed in their area. They might not get their promotions if the quota is exceeded. So when Tang finally did get pregnant, local family planning officials told her her permit had expired, even though it had no expiration date on it. A local court later confirmed that the family planning paper canceling the permit was bogus, but it stopped short of saying Tang was due compensation. Tang says what she actually wants is for the family planning officials who forced her to have the abortion to face criminal proceedings. She's been working on that for years, but it's not going anywhere. Wang Feng, a demographer and director of the Brookings Tsinghua Center for Public Policy in Beijing, says quotas have been part of the one-child policy since it started in 1982, with extreme measures sometimes taken to meet them. There were widespread practices of forced abortion, sterilization, IOD insertion, 
there were cases where farmers' houses were torn down, their draft animals were taken away, the properties were taken away, and the individuals were detained. Wang Feng says China's one-child policy may be one of the most draconian examples of government social engineering ever seen, and especially in its early years, it was breathtakingly invasive. Some neighborhood committees would even post charts of women's menstrual periods on the wall so everyone could see if anyone was late. Zhang Li Jia, who wrote the memoir "Socialism Is Great" about coming of age working in a state-owned missile factory. Recalls how the family planning official monitored things there. You exactly have to show your sanitary pass, your blood to her, and then she will issue the sanitary towel. And often she will make comments. And looking back, I'm so funny. She, oh, you get very heavy flow. Tell your mum to make you some duck bone chicken soup and things. <laughs> Now, when the one-child policy was conceived, the party was genuinely concerned that China had too many people. And having many more would be disastrous. Having enough resources to go around is still a concern, says Sun Changmin, the deputy director of Shanghai's family planning department. He says China's population when the Communist Party took over was less than 600 million. But then public health improved, infant mortality dropped, people lived longer, and the population grew fast. In the midst of it all, Mao Zedong still encouraged women to have more children—a mistake the party recognized eventually. Sun says some Chinese studies have shown that the ideal population for China and its finite resources is 700 million, a bit more than half of what it is now. So he's all for continuing the one-child policy indefinitely. Wang Feng of the Brookings Tsinghua Center has a different view. He says having enough resources to go around isn't so much about how many people there are in a country, but about how the people in a country use resources. What's more, he says, it's not clear that the one-child policy in the end made that big of a difference. We oftentimes hear this claim that the one-child policy in China prevented 400 million births, and hence made such a great contribution. To population control in the world, and even、uh, help to slow down global warming. This is totally a bogus claim. Because he says the biggest drop in China's fertility rate happened in the 1970s, before the one-child policy started. It went from almost six to 2.5. If you're looking at other countries around China, like say Thailand or North,、uh, South Korea, or even North Korea, fertility、uh, has Come down in all those places to the level that's very close to China, or not much higher. And they did that without coercion, without the 300 million abortions linked to the one-child policy, without the skewed gender gap, or the 150 million only children. That generation is now growing up as part of a shrinking workforce, supporting an ever larger elderly population. The ratio now is five workers to every retiree. In 2030, it will be two to one. A burden for the state and a drag on economic growth. Shanghai Family Planning Deputy Director Sun Changmin recognizes this is a serious problem. He says the fertility rate in Shanghai is now 0.9, less than one child per couple. So the Shanghai government lets only children who get married have two kids. Problem is, only about half of them do. Some of my friends also think about have another baby, but they haven't done this now.
That's Zhao Hanlu, a 29-year-old online editor at a Shanghai newspaper. She sits with her husband in their sunny apartment. The walls decorated with paintings they've done themselves, including a not half bad copy of Van Gogh's Starry Night. She says her friends who are mothers find raising one child challenge enough. So when they're thinking about the second baby, they think, "Oh, who will help me to raise the second child? The first one is make me crazy. And do we have enough money to have a second baby?" Zhao's husband, Sky Zhang, a 28-year-old telecoms network consultant, says. He'd still like to have two kids because he knows how lonely it can be as an only child. Because I feel alone when I was growing up, I just play with myself. <laughs> yeah, so if we have two children, I think they are not alone. Still, they say it's a hassle getting the paperwork to have a second child. Second baby is very, very difficult because you have a lot of papers, a lot of steps. More than ten around twenty. That's to certify that each of the two parents is an only child and thus eligible to have a second child. Making it so difficult isn't exactly a great strategy for boosting a low fertility rate, but old habits die hard in a family planning apparatus used to exerting intrusive control. Still, change may be coming. One of the big reforms announced at China's annual legislative session in March was that the 30-year-old Family Planning Commission will be merged with the Ministry of Health. While the government says the one-child policy will continue, demographer Wang Feng thinks this may be the beginning of the end. I would say nobody in the decision-making body would insist that the policy should continue indefinitely. I think even the most cautious and conservative members would concede that someday this policy has to end. And he says collapsing the Family Planning Commission into the Ministry of Health. Means getting rid of many of the jobs that existed solely to implement a coercive policy. He believes that without the dedicated personnel or the dedicated department incentivized to use any means necessary to enforce the policy, the policy will gradually fade away. And what of those hundreds of thousands of workers who built their careers around charting menstrual cycles and punishing those who dared to have more than one child? Wang Feng cites the novel Frog. By the Nobel Prize-winning Chinese author Mo Yan. In that novel, he recorded the journey that this fictitious aunt, who forcefully aborted thousands of babies as a person in charge of birth control in a local county, and how this aunt basically went nuts later on in her life, and recognizing the horrible crime that she had done. So I think this novel actually will be a vivid record that will go down in history for people to understand、uh, what happened. And what happened, he says, is that a policy the party enacted to help the country and itself has hurt more than helped in ways that will be felt for generations. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Another policy long past due is China's policy of keeping millions of migrants linked to their villages without urban registration permits. They can't access services like healthcare, pensions, and good education for their children. Socially, it could be a ticking time bomb. You'll hear about it tomorrow on the World. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is the World. Authorities are now saying two people were killed and dozens injured in twin explosions at the finish line of the Boston Marathon today. 
They describe a terrifying scene of smoke, broken glass, and severed limbs. Police also say there was another explosion at the JFK Presidential Library and Museum in another part of Boston. We go now to WGBH reporter Ann Mostu. She was out covering the marathon today. Ann, tell us what you saw. Well, Marco, I was about a block from the finish line. On I was on Newberry Street when I heard an incredibly loud noise. It sounded like an explosion. And my colleague, Edgar Herwick, walked toward the finish line to see what was happening. I waited on the corner. And as he got closer, another very, very loud explosion went off. And we saw smoke coming up and people started screaming and running toward us. So we also ran. Were you able to speak to anybody once you got to a safe area? And what kind of reactions did you see among the runners who continued to stream in as these events were unfolding? Well, we we talked to people as we were walking and half half running, half walking toward the river, and then then over the Mass Ave Bridge. One person said that he saw a person fly into the air. Another person said he saw body parts on the ground. People were very, very shaken up. The the explosions were so loud uh, that you could feel them in the ground. And um, it it was just it was just absolute chaos. People were very, very, very upset. Do we have a clearer picture at this point of the actual number of injuries? I've seen numbers ranging from 25 up to over 100 being reported by the, the Boston Globe and where these people are being treated. My understanding is that people are at Boston hospitals and that there are a total of at least 90 people injured and that two people have been confirmed dead. WGBH News reporter Ann Mostu, thanks for your time. Great, thank you. Now, one of those taking part in today's Boston Marathon was my WGBH colleague, Alexis Rapo. She was about a block away when the blast went off. Alexis, uh, are you there? I am. Hi. Can you tell me what happened? We were a block away from the finish line, um, and we were in a store uh, post-marathon, and we felt the first blast go off and then a second blast. Uh, And immediately on Newbury Street, there were people running. Uh, The store that we were in were pulling people in off the streets and bringing people up to the second floor. Uh, And we we waited, not knowing what was coming next. And then news came uh, that it had been a bomb blast. Yep. And we we waited about a half an hour, um, and a number of people came in who were missing uh, folks that they were waiting for at the finish line and were quite distraught. Um, now, you mentioned Newberry Street. We also heard that from Anne. This is a main shopping street in downtown Boston, very popular with out-of-towners. I suspect a lot of people were there during uh, the, the marathon today. Now, you said we. Your, your children were with you, and they were at the blast site 25 Minutes before the explosion, can you tell us what happened to them? Yes, um, and as a matter of fact, we were just looking at pictures to confirm how close they were. They were standing directly on the corner where the blast went off across from the stands. They had been there 25 minutes before watching the finish before they came over to Newbury Street for us to meet up as a family. Uh, so they had they been there 25 minutes later, we, we were just terrified to think about it, um, but Frank... Thankfully, everyone in our family was safe and, and a block away when it took place. So how many others were with you today? We had uh, four other guests with us. We had a friend in from Sweden, and we had uh, three other friends from Cape Cod joining us. 
And how are they processing what happened today, especially your, your out-of-towner friend who was here, obviously, to watch the marathon, I suspect? Yeah, you know, it's it's all just such a shock to us, and and we didn't have any news reports. We couldn't get um, we couldn't get any news when we were in Boston. We were just, uh, frankly, amazed by and, and frightened by the number of uh, ambulances we continued to hear for another hour to two hours after we were able to leave the city. Uh, so our it, we're all just processing it now. Um, our our friend from Sweden is just you know, sort of shocked, and she had the photos that we were just running through to see actually how close in the vicinity they were. Now, uh, I gather you did not finish the race, very understandably, um, but how do you begin to process what happened today? I can't make any sense of it. I mean, this is one of these events where it's just an incredible event where people have trained for years and years to try and run a race like this and thousands of others are fundraising and it's all about doing the best, being the best, achieving personal goals either for yourself or for others less fortunate. And for an event like this to happen at the Boston Marathon is, is just really be beyond sort of understanding. And I gather you got in your car with your kids, you drove home, you live out on Cape Cod. That must have been a very bizarre journey. What are your children asking you? How do you explain this to them? Our, our eight-year-old was absolutely terrified. We felt the blast go off, and immediately in Boston, as we were getting the news, um, her instinct was to literally run out of the store and, and try and run away. The questions that they were asking us on the way home were, you know, is, is Cape Cod where we live a safe place? Why would something like this happen in Boston? And we listened to the radio in silence the whole way back to the Cape, which is about an hour drive, and uh, we're trying to get as many facts as possible. Um, you know, I think we're all happy to be far from the event now and um, and just saddened as we watch the news. My colleague from WGBH, Alexis Rapo, there speaking to us uh, after having bailed out of the Boston Marathon, understandably, earlier today. Thank you very much, Alexis. Thank you. Before we sign off, here's a brief recap of what we know at this point about the explosions here in Boston today. Police now say three people have died in the double bomb blast at the Boston Marathon. One of them was an eight-year-old child. The bombs went off near the finish line mid-afternoon as runners continued to stream in from the 26-mile course. Authorities say more than 100 people have been injured, some gravely, according to Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, who spoke a few minutes ago. Injuries range from cuts and bruises to amputations and severe trauma. Many are being treated in area hospitals. A federal official said two other bombs were found near the end of the race route. President Obama promised today that those responsible would feel the full weight of justice, but he also cautioned people not to jump to conclusions until all the facts are in. So far, there's no word on who may have carried out the attack or why. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH here in Boston, I'm Marco Werman for The World. Good night and take care.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.